I kind of like to think of myself as Parkinson this afternoon, <laughs> and John as a significant famous person that we're going to hear from. One thing we have in common, apart from our grey hair, is that we're both nervous about this. <laughs> I'm nervous about uh, talking to somebody who I've learned so much from in various ways, and John, because it's always hard to talk about yourself and your life in front of so many people in a humble and truthful way. So um, how about we pray to start that this will be a helpful session for us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to your church, that you provide for your church um, all sorts of people to play their part in the building of your kingdom. And we thank you for your servant, John, and for his life and ministry, and for this opportunity to hear from him and uh, learn of his life and be encouraged by your grace in his life and the way you've used him. We pray uh, you would be with us both as we do this interview. It would be a, a really helpful time for everybody here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> um, I'm going to pick up on some of the questions that were in the boxes. If your question is not asked, um, don't, don't panic. Uh, we had to <laughs> pick and choose some of them, okay? So uh, we, we won't hear all the questions that were in the box after the session this afternoon. But I have a few of my own questions to sort of get things rolling. They're also linked with some of the questions that were asked, but not put in exactly the same way. But first, some... Where do you live and where do you... And uh, are you retired or do you work? What, tell us a bit about your well, present that's life. four questions. That's cheating. Yeah. I yeah, mean, so. you got four questions into one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to begin the whole session by saying that I'm very happy to attempt a question and answer or interactive period like this on one condition. And that is, you remember, that my name is not Solomon. <laughs> and I don't have the wisdom of Solomon, nor do I have the infallibility of the Pope. <laughs> so that's a good ground on which to begin, isn't it? Well, my name is John Stott. I live in uh, what we call a muse. Uh, that's a little uh, alleyway in London, about two blocks from All Souls Church. And I've been there for 30 years. It's just a two-room apartment, uh, and that's where I hang out. <laughs> and what does hanging out entail? You, yes, you I'm still a member of All Souls Church, Langham Place, London, which is the west end of, uh, of the city. And uh, the extraordinary thing is that I've never been to any other church regularly as a member. I was a member uh, of All Souls Church when I was a little boy of about three and four I was somewhat naughty in those days, and I used to sit up in the gallery of the church and make pellets out of bus tickets and <laughs> drop them on the fashionable hats of the ladies below. <laughs> and little did I imagine in those days that I would one day occupy the pulpit. <laughs> um, John, you've been a Christian since <coughs> 1938, mm -hmm. which is a long time. Like, that's... I mean... Uh, yeah, I'm twice as old as most of the people here, and it's nearly twice my age, so... Um, Makes me very ancient indeed. Um, uh, well, it's a great testament to the grace of God, I guess. I, I wanted to ask you some things about being a Christian so long, um, and I guess one would be, well, who's the most, been the most influential person in your life as a Christian, or, or people? <coughs> Well, I imagine all of us would answer that question by beginning with our parents, who've had an indelible influence on us. My father was a scientific secularist, 
and uh, was a doctor, a cardiologist. My mother, uh, my mother's mother was a German Lutheran, and so she was brought up in Lutheran piety, and she taught my sisters and me to read the Bible and say our prayers and go to church and all the rest, which I continued to do without knowing what I was doing uh, until I was 17 years old. So uh, I just want to skate over my mother's influence on me in that respect. I was at rugby school, the place where the game was invented, and uh, I attended a small meeting of uh, boys in the school uh, for some months until we had a visiting preacher whose name was the Reverend Eric Nash, who for some unaccountable reason was always known to his friends as Bash. So Bash preached one Sunday at the Christian Union on Pilate's question, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? And I was hit really for six by that uh, question because I'd never considered it before. And to cut a long story short, he took me out for a ride in his car. He answered my questions. He showed me the way of salvation. And he had the wisdom to leave me alone to count the cost. So I counted the cost. And that night, I knelt at my bedside in the dormitory when the lights were out and the other boys were in bed. And I told Jesus I'd made a mess of my life so far. I felt I had, though I was only 17. And uh, I thanked him for his death and resurrection. And I opened the door and invited him to come in and I felt nothing. I saw no flash of lightning, I heard no peals of thunder, no electric shocks passed through my body, so I hopped into bed and went to sleep. <laughs> and the following day, I knew that something had happened to me. It took several weeks to understand what it was, but I knew that the Christ who had been outside was now inside. Now I've told you all that in answer to the question about influences on my life, because I wrote to Bash and told him what I had done, and he replied, and from that developed a correspondence in which he wrote to me once a week for five years. And it was the most amazing faithfulness in Christian nurture. I shall only, I mean, I have to wait till I get to glory to discover exactly how much I owe to him. And um, what, what would you say are uh, one or two of the main things that have sustained you as a Christian for a long time? Like, like we're talking nearly... 70 years, aren't we? That's, that's a long time. Yeah, it is a long time. Well, I think I would say that I'm an impenitent believer in the importance of the daily quiet time, whatever you like to call it. Uh, a time of Bible reading, Bible meditation, Bible study, and prayer. And I have maintained that all these years and simply couldn't do without it. I believe it's... An, I know there are a lot of people who are poo-pooing it today, and I want to poo-poo them. <laughs> and, uh, and say that... I, be I believe it's essential for all of us. Right. Um, you've also um, remained single uh, as a minister all your mm -hmm. life. Can you talk a bit about the, some of the advantages and disadvantages of that? And uh, has it helped your ministry? And yes, well, I wasn't expecting to be single when I was your age. I may say I was uh, expecting to marry and uh, was uh, keeping my eyes open. Uh, indeed, uh, when I was about my late 20s, I forget exactly the years, I... Uh, had there were two ladies I dated, not simultaneously. I may say, <laughs> <laughs> one was a very beautiful American lady, and the other was a Brit. Uh, all I can say really about it is that uh, when the time came for me to make a decision as to whether to go forward or not, I lacked assurance from God that this was His will for me. I can't explain it more than that. Uh, so I drew back from it. 
And having done that twice, I naturally asked myself the question, is this a pattern? Is this something that God is teaching me? And I came to the conclusion that it was. And I can only say that looking back over my life, um, I could not have traveled as I have done. I could not have been involved in the international ministries in which I've been involved. And I could not have written books as I have done if I had had uh, the responsibility of a wife and family. Mind you, I love children. I found it difficult uh, to be single. Uh, so the disadvantage, I suppose, is the inevitable loneliness, which from time to time you experience. But the advantage is that in our church in London, we have enormous numbers of single people. Uh, I think the reason is that London is, is, well, we have a lot of these single people. As soon as they marry, they want to leave London. They can't afford to stay in London, or they want a backyard for the children to romp in. So we've got a constant move out, which leaves a lot of single people in the congregation who can perhaps relate to me uh, more easily than to married people, just as married people can relate more easily to married clergy. But I think it has been an advantage to me in spite of the disadvantages. Huh. Um, I'll come back to some questions about your writing and other things you're involved in at the moment. But I want to pick up some of the questions from your talk this afternoon. Okay. Um, uh, there's one here about how to develop a Christian mind. What are some of the ways you can do it, um, and particularly with the relevant issues in our world mm. in, in view? Yeah, that's a tricky one to respond to in a few moments. Um, I think I'd simply like to say that for all of us who are called to the task of communication, preaching, teaching, and so on, we need to study on both sides of the cultural divide. I sometimes think of uh, this flat piece of territory, um, which is deeply cut by a ravine of 2,000 years of changing culture. Here is the biblical world, here is the modern world, and between the two is this great gulf. Now, if we're going to communicate the word to the world, we must study on both sides of the divide. It's not enough to study scripture. We also have to study the modern world. And the best way that I have uh, been helped to do this is by forming a reading group in London a good many years ago when I invited a dozen young, professional, committed Christian uh, people to join me, a couple of doctors, a couple of uh, teachers, an architect, and so on. And we met once a month and agreed before the end of the previous session what book we were going to read before we uh, met again, or what movie we were going to see. Um, and then when we met, we'd sit around in a circle, and each member would be given a minute, only one minute, in order to summarize what he or she thought was the major challenge uh, to us of, of the culture that is expressed in the book. And then we went into a hammer and tongs debate for the rest of the evening. And at the end of the evening, we asked ourselves the basic question, what does the biblical gospel, the true authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, what has it to say or how can it relate to people who live in that culture? So I can only tell you that those young people dragged me screaming into the modern world and I found it enormously helpful to be obliged to read books that I would never otherwise have read. So we looked really for the cult books that the university students are reading because we need to be familiar uh, with those. Yeah. And there was, a, there was another question about, um, I suppose, intellectual contentment. Um, given that there are some things that we cannot know and that God chooses not to reveal, the question is, how do I prevent my desire for knowledge and growing in knowledge 
interfering with contentment? This is an interesting way of putting a yeah, question. Yeah, it is an interesting question. Now, it, the, it presupposes, doesn't it, that, uh, as the questioner says, there are mysteries. We don't fully understand God and there are secrets that he has kept. But nevertheless, how can we be inquisitive or curious about these things without upsetting our contentment? It's that last phrase that surprises me. It, it presupposes uh, that contentment that we should be intellectually, isn't it, content? I would like to approach it rather differently, I think, and say that if God is infinite, which we believe he is, if God is infinite, we shall never come to the end of him. I believe that we're going to spend eternity exploring the depths of the wonder of the person of God. And as we explore God, we shall never come to the end because he's infinite. That is the meaning of infinite. So I think that our curiosity will continue into the next world. By the way, the biblical basis for this is in 1 Corinthians 13, where we're told that faith and love and hope abide. Now, if hope abides, there must be something in the future that we are hoping for, and that is a fuller, deeper, richer knowledge of God in his fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you. Um, another one picks up on the last point you made. Um, what does having a Christian heart involve? Are we made up of separate entities, i.e. the heart, mind, soul, or are they one thing combined? Well, I would want to say, I don't know if other people would agree with this, but that I don't think the Bible gives us a consistent psychology I don't think the different biblical authors use words like conscience, will, heart, person, soul. It doesn't use all these words in a consistent way. Different biblical authors use them in different ways, and it's that that makes the, the question a difficult one. Um, so what was it again? <laughs> are, are they separate entities, are this, and you know, what's the heart bit about? But you started, didn't you, with the heart? Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. Well... I'm sure one could approach all these questions in different ways, but what comes to me, what has helped me very much, is to think about the emotions of Jesus. Um, John uh, chapter 11, John's Gospel chapter 11, which is the marvelous story of the raising of uh, Lazarus from the dead. Uh, there is one verse, I think it's verse 33, in which we read that Jesus sighed, at least that's one uh, English version, but the Greek word, uh, means that he snorted. It's a word that is used of uh, being of snorting with indignation and anger, or of horses actually snorting. Embrimestai is the word. And uh, the commentators that are from Calvin onwards have all seen that Jesus was expressing a certain anger in the face of death, because death is no part of God's original purpose for humankind, and death is still called the the uh, last enemy to be destroyed. So in the face of death, Jesus snorted with anger and indignation. He felt horror in the face of death. But two verses later on, we read that Jesus wept uh, because of his sympathy and compassion for Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary. Now I've found the bringing together of those two very remarkable, that he snorted with anger in the face of death, and he wept with pity and compassion uh, towards uh, Martha and Mary. So if he had these emotions, it surely is right that we should have them too. But I wouldn't want to categorize them too much in the way that you were asking. 
Okay. Sorry, I'm such a chatterbox. I no, no, that's that's fine. More of you, less of me. That's good. <laughs> um, the, uh, the last, there's a, there's a number of questions that came out of this afternoon's talk about more practical issues to do with evangelism. You said that a Christian mind um, helps with effective evangelism, particularly giving reason for the faith, and that sparked a number of questions for people, uh, different forms. Um, but uh, you probably have similar things to say. Um, one was about uh, talking to people of, at a different level of intelligence, people who seem cleverer than us, and um, um, how, how we approach that. Um, you know, that we feel less intellectually capable than him, uh, than them, and how that affects our evangelism. One was about grandfathers, funnily <laughs> enough. Uh, somebody said they have two grandfathers who do not know Christ and believe that they will die, and that is all. How may I tell them about Jesus? What sort of arguments should appeal to someone of their generation? And um, the other one was about the fact of being a Christian, how often non-Christians don't even give you a hearing. They assume, well, that's just your opinion or it's just your perspective. That's, it's hard to, to well, talk from the perspective of a Christian mind to people who aren't Christian. Graham, how many questions is that? No, it's, well, it's six or seven in one. I, I, I just... I'd love to hear about the grandfather question, but also just uh, things you have to say about issues of about personal evangelism and, yeah. and reasoning the faith, and they're all sort of versions of that yeah. kind of question. Well, let me begin by affirming my belief in friendship evangelism. Uh, it's a pretty common expression now, but it wasn't. Uh, I know when uh, I was your age as an undergraduate, but I do believe that we need to win the right to talk to people. I know there is a place for uh, dis the distribution of tracts, there is a place for uh, witnessing to strangers on the street corner, but I believe that the, the most Christian context within which to share the gospel is the context of friendship. And it's when we have developed a friendship with somebody, a genuine friendship, not just in order to win them for Christ, but I mean that we love them and are concerned for them. Um, sooner or later, as we're praying, God will open the door for us to share the gospel. But it will come very naturally and will not be forced. And I think that's very important. I keep remembering that Jesus was called the friend of publicans and sinners. And if he was the friend, we can be friends too, even with outsiders, um, even with people who are rejecting at the moment the gospel. So that's the first thing. The second thing that occurs to me I'd like to say, I read a book some years ago called A Today Sort of Evangelism. It was written by a man called John Poulton, who was the Archbishop's advisor on evangelism. And what I remember from that book, and struck me at the time, was a sentence that went something like this. Uh, we have to look like what we're talking about. And what communicates basically now is personal authenticity. I think I'd like to say that again because it's very well worded in my view. We need to look like what we're talking about. And what communicates basically now is our personal authenticity. So this is simply the, the fact that we need to be what we're talking about. Um, and I, I believe that this is the greatest hindrance to evangelism in the church or in the university today, that we don't look like what we're talking about. What we're talking about is Jesus. And the question is whether we really look like him and whether we behave like him, because that is God's eternal purpose for us, to become like Jesus Christ, as I know you're studying in these days. Uh, I'll come back to that, perhaps. Uh, and the, 
What, do you have wisdom about what young punks like us, how we should relate in a, in a personal abandoned way to people much older? Do, do you have things to offer there? Because there are parents, grandparents, yeah. many are in that situation. And, um, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, we know all about teaching our grandparents to suck eggs, don't we? Is that a phrase you use in Australia? <laughs> I think we need to realise, I mean, I say we, but I'm on the other end of the stick. If you'll imagine that I'm one of these young people uh, who wants to witness to his uh, great, no, his grandparents, if not great-grandparents, I think we do have to recognise that they find it difficult to uh, be taught by their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, and we therefore need to approach the task with due humility. And again, I'm sorry if I say the same thing all over again, but I, I think they would be much more likely to listen to us when they see the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. And then it's not just a question of sharing uh, ideas and words and formulae with them, but of their seeing Christ in our lives. If, may I go on on this a little bit longer? Please do. Uh, I'd like to move it on a bit from our personal evangelism to local church evangelism and share with you again a, a verse that has been very challenging to me. It's uh, the first epistle of John, chapter 4 and verse 12, where the Apostle John says, Nobody has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, nobody's ever seen God. The invisibility of God is a problem. It was a problem in Old Testament days when the uh, heathen neighbors of the Jews would laugh at the Jews for actually worshipping an, uh, an invisible God. The, and we find in the Old Testament several times, where is now your God? Because we can't see him. You know, come to our heathen temples and we'll show you their mouths and noses and eyes and ears and hands and feet and so on. We can show you, but where is your God? We can't see him. Ha, ha, ha. And they laughed at the Jews. And several times we, we get in Scripture, why uh, do men say to us, where is now your God? Why don't you come and make yourself known? You know, cry to God to manifest himself. And this invisibility of God is a problem today. It's a problem for young people brought up in scientific secularism. They're taught not to believe in anything that they can't see. So how does God solve the problem of his own invisibility? Well, you know, the first answer, of course, is in Christ. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father, and Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And we have that in John 1, verse 18, which begins with exactly the same words, nobody has ever seen God, but goes on, the only begotten of the Father, he will make him known. Well, people say that's wonderful, but it happened 2,000 years ago. Is there no way in which the invisible God makes himself visible today? And the answer is yes. The one who made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians. If we love one another, 1 John 4:12. nobody's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected. Dear friends, I honestly believe that's one of the most breathtaking verses in the New Testament. The claim that the eternal invisible Father who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians. See, it's the same theme, isn't it, that we have to look like what we're talking about. Um, back to your, um, your ministry, life in ministry. Um, particularly uh, in Australia, you've been here quite a lot of times, but for people like me, um, it's your writing that's 
that has really had an influence. So I know in the EU, um, like Michael was talking about the cross of Christ, which we return to often in our annual conference talks. There's a social work group working through issues facing Christians today. Um, when I was at uni, basic Christianity was just the, the book you gave everybody to think about Christianity. Um, just, I just am interested in your Christian writing. Um, how you do you just get an idea for a book and sit down and write it, or do people say, John, you really must write a book about that? How's it, how, how do you come to write Christian books? Well, I had no intention of doing so at the beginning and no under, uh, idea that I was going to become an author. Um, I became an author through the Bishop of London, actually. He uh, preached at my institution uh, to All Souls Church, and he said to the uh, church wardens uh, that he hoped that they would give me time to study and to write. Two years later, he wrote to me personally and invited me to contribute what was then called the Bishop of London's Lent book. That is, he commissioned a book uh, every year which uh, church people were invited to read during the season of Lent, and he invited me to do that. I was astonished, but I naturally accepted, and I wrote the book that came to be known as Men with a Message, which is an introduction to the writers of the New Testament and their messages. Um, that book went fairly well, and for that reason, publishers started pursuing me and asking if I would write a book on this or that. But actually, the next one, I think, was Basic Christianity, and much of the uh, material which I used here at Sydney EU uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the mission of 1958 uh, was, I think, subsequently incorporated into uh, Basic Christianity. It was the material I was using in university missions all over the world. I had the privilege of leading 50 university missions between 1952 and 1977, and this was the material. And um, as a Christian writer, uh, do you now make decisions about what you write about? What, what, are your, uh, what do you love writing about? What's, are you still writing? Um, there's a few questions there, I know. <laughs> yes, Where are you at in your writing now? Is what I'm... Um, now, what shall I say? I've uh, sort of lost the thread just a moment. Give me a moment to recover sure. myself. Mm. And uh, Now, I think what I was going to say is this, that, the, that I've hardly ever written a book that I haven't previously preached or lectured. Right. And it's really in the exigencies of uh, parochial life in uh, preparing a series of sermons and so on that having done it, people said, you ought to get that published. Hmm. And that's how the Bible Speaks Today series began. It began with um, my giving a series of 30, I think it was, uh, sermons on Galatians. Hmm. And when it was finished, as I say, people said, you ought to get it published. And when it was published, I think I wrote to the publishers and said, well, couldn't we do a series called The Bible Speaks Today? And I wrote, I think, seven of those and also um, edited the whole of the New Testament. Are you still writing? Have you, have you got any projects on the boil? You know. Well, my latest book is uh, latest two books are. Um, what are they? Now the trouble about writing books <laughs> is you never read them, <laughs> <laughs> so you forget what's in them. But a book was published two years ago called "The Birds Are Teachers," which is illustrated by my own photographs and is all in lavish uh, colour, and I enjoy doing that very much. 
And I now have been writing, I've just finished really, a companion volume which is called People, My Teachers. And uh, its subtitle is Round the World in 80 Years. Uh, and what I've done is to draw a circle around the world and plot 16 stopping places, at each of which I introduce my readers to a different person. They're all dead, but I've had some link with them, either before they died, or through visiting their grave, or through uh, being touched by something they've written, and so on. So it has a certain biographical, autobiographical, <coughs> ge geographical, and anecdotal quality. Are there any Australians on the list? Yes, uh, the, my Australian representative is Paul White, the jungle doctor, who is a fellow ornithologist and whom I knew quite well. And was he was, of course, your president yes. of uh, AE, yeah. Yeah. AFES. Um, John, uh, one of the reasons you're here in Australia is the Langham Partnership. Um, most of you, or a proportion of you, would have got a pamphlet about it on your seats. Uh, I guess this is your um, latest passion or yeah. thing that you're keen to get going. What, what's, what is the Langham Partnership about and how did it come about? Well, it came about really from my travels in the third world, which is the last uh, 30 years or so. <clears throat> I found, of course, what we all know, that the church is growing very rapidly in many parts of the developing world. And uh, the statistic that I always remember, given by Dr. Donald McGavran, who is the sort of grandfather of the church growth movement, that in a recent period of 15 years, Africa added 30 million Christians to its churches. It took Europe, he went on to say, a thousand years to win uh, 30 million Christians. But what Europe took a thousand years to do, Africa did in 15, which is a most remarkable thing. It, explosion is not too strong a word or dramatic a word to use for what is going on in, in particularly Latin America and Africa, and to a lesser degree <clears throat> in some countries of Europe, of um, Asia. But, although I rejoice greatly in this numerical church growth, it has nearly always been growth without depth. And the paradox of those three words seems to me to sum up, in general, uh, the Christian scene in the world today, growth without depth. So there is superficiality, <coughs> excuse me, superficiality, shallowness of discipleship everywhere. So my friends and I began to ask what ought to be done, what can be done to, uh, to help to lead uh, churches of the third world into a greater measure of maturity. And from that we came to this, um, I hope I can get it right <clears throat> from my memory. We came uh, really to, to identify three biblical bases for what we wanted to do. One is that God wants his people to grow. We have no doubt that this shallowness and superficiality is not the will of God. The apostolic writers of the New Testament say again and again that you're babies and you need to grow up. So that's number one. God wants his people to grow. Two, they grow by the word of God. More than anything else, they grow by the word of God. You remember Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy, human beings don't live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what's true of individuals is true of churches. Churches live and grow and flourish by the word of God, but they languish and even perish without it. 
So God wants his people to grow. They grow by the word of God. Thirdly, the word of God comes to them mainly through preaching. Now, of course, they can read the word of God for themselves if they're lucky enough to have a Bible and if they're literate, which millions of people are not. They can also join a Bible study group. But if I may generalize, throughout all over the world, the word of God comes to people most regularly and often from the pulpit. So the pew is a reflection of the pulpit. The pulpit is still enormously influential in leading people into maturity in Christ. Now, sorry to go on so long, but that leads me to say this. If God wants his people to grow, if they grow by the word of God, if the word of God comes to them through preaching, what can we do to raise the standards of biblical preaching? That's the logical question to ask. And the ministries of the Langham Partnership have developed in answer to that question. So our three ministries, quite quickly, first is literature. We say again and again, you can't preach if you don't study, and you can't study if you don't have books. Books are the tools of a pastor's trade. So we make tens of thousands of good evangelical books available to uh, many, many people in the third world. We also have a special basic student library for seminary students. And we also make an annual uh, offer to, I think it's 800 seminaries, to their libraries, so that we help them to keep building up their library. So that's books. Second is scholarships, especially to enable the brighter and brightest students in the third world to get a doctorate in theology, Old Testament, New Testament, church history, or ethics. So that having got their doctorate, they can return to their own country uh, to teach in a seminary. We want to capture the seminaries of the third world for the evangelical faith. Thirdly, we have a ministry of, um, what is the word? I've just lost it. Seminars, thank you. Preaching seminars, where we take away uh, maybe 60, 70, 80 pastors for the inside of a week for a, an intensive workshop on preaching, how to interpret the Bible, how to prepare a sermon, how to study, and so on. Uh, so let books, scholarships, and uh, seminars are our three main ministries, and our overriding desire through these is to build up the church through uh, increasing or raising the standards of biblical preaching. I think I've, I'm sorry to be so long. No, no, that's, that's um, what's brilliant about that is mm -hmm. to see somebody involved in evangelical leadership for so long still thinking strategically, like there's a world yeah, scale kind of world. thinking. That's brilliant. Um, tell me, uh, mm -hmm. just as a final kind of question, the, what do you think some of the <clears throat> challenges, particular challenges uh, before, are before evangelicals today in our world? Yeah, I have no difficulty in responding that the, the major challenge is pluralism. And we need to know that pluralism is not just an affirmation that there is a plurality of faiths and ideologies in the world. We all know that. But pluralism is itself an ideology. It's an ideology that affirms the independent validity of every religion. And it is a pluralism is a strong enemy uh, of any attempt to convert other people or to uh, I'm sorry you see my mind is getting tired but hold, hold on a minute be patient um, 
What I really wanted to say is that uh, yeah, if we insist on affirming the uniqueness and the finality of Jesus Christ, we will suffer for it. Pluralists cannot take this idea that Jesus is unique. He is unique, and we're able to argue it. He's unique in his incarnation. Even the Hindu avatars, sometimes translated incarnations, are quite, quite different. There's nothing like the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. He is unique in his uh, atonement. Nobody else has ever claimed to die for the sins of the world. And he is unique in his resurrection. Nobody else has ever uh, conquered death and risen again. So at least in those three things, he is unique. So I sometimes say we don't talk about Jesus the Great. You can talk, if you like, about Alexander the Great and Napoleon the Great and Charles the Great, but not Jesus the Great. He's not the Great, he is the only. There is nobody like him. And we have to be bold. Mind you, we will be gentle in seeking to lead people to accept the, the uniqueness and finality of Jesus Christ. But we have to be firm in our conviction that he is unique. So that, I believe, I'm quite sure we shall suffer for it, and the Church will be where it really belongs, in the wilderness again. Mm. Um, we've uh, run out of time, uh, but thank you very much, John, for being willing to answer questions in front of a large group of people like this. Um, I have a gift for you, mm. sort of a men memento. Oh, very kind. Uh, two gifts, in fact. <laughs> There's a card and some, something nice to eat. Oh, uh, good. But also, some amongst us... Uh -huh. I think you have a fan I club here in Australia. <laughs> and uh, on the back, somebody, somebody stopped me. What does that mean? Can you tell me that, somebody? <laughs> it's an allusion to a movie. It's a movie. Yeah. And Thank a you Jim very Perry much. Movie. Um, and your own name tag from Thank Annual you. Conference 2002. So uh, please accept this on behalf of us all. You're Thank not you very much. You to do it. How about we finish by praying for John and particularly this great vision of um, equipping and empowering preaching in the third world particularly. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant John and for uh, his humble service for many years, your grace in his life sustaining him through uh, the word and through prayer. We thank you for his ministry in London and All Souls and his writing ministry and various other things. We thank you for uh, using him and working through him. And Father, we pray you continue to sustain him and uh, give him the strength he needs uh, to live and work in your service. Father, we particularly pray for this enterprise of equipping uh, Bible teachers in uh, the, the third world and the the areas of the world where Christianity is, is exploding, but not at depth at this stage, we pray that you provide for your church. You would raise up teachers. You continue to provide for organisations like the Langham Partnership that seek to, to uh, equip those uh, great evangelical movements mm -hmm. in our world. And we pray uh, that uh, your gospel would go out. We pray for our own nation. We long to see such explosion here. And yet we feel that great barrier of pluralism and resistance to the uniqueness of Christ. 
we ask you would give us strength and perseverance in suffering as we declare a very unpopular message. Mm. Father, we pray that the Lord Jesus would be honoured in all the world, the world that he has died for, the world that will all bow down before him mm. as Lord on that great day. We pray it in his name. Amen. 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 Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Bless you. Yeah.